Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Today, I've got a couple of verses here I'd like to highlight from the Psalms. Let's lead off with Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, O God, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. What does it uh, look like? What does it look like? to allow God to satisfy us in the morning with his unfailing love. Are you satisfied this morning? Are you satisfied this morning with the unfailing love of God? Are you singing for joy this morning? Is there gladness in your heart today? Have you allowed the eyes of your heart to be enlightened and enlivened? by the reality of who God is and all that he has done, his redemptive power, his grace, his mercy, his sufficiency for all things. Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied with the unfailing love of God? That's the um, hunger and thirst for righteousness calling. Like we hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then we are satisfied with the unfailing love of God. And nothing else in the world will ever satisfy Nothing. That's sort of what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is all about, if you've ever wondered. Okay, Uh, I have one more verse. Psalm 143, verse 8. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I've put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I entrust my life. So yes, there's a theme. Uh, There's a theme to these verses. Um, This is a morning theme. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Uh, Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. There's a theme here, and it is about what we do in the morning and how we spend the morning and who we spend the morning with and what we read in the morning and what we uh, soak in in the morning. So what the psalmist is, is inviting God to do is to pour forth his word in such a way that we would be reminded of who God is and of God's unfailing love, because that's what empowers the psalmist, not just to live in a way that is satisfied. Jesus put it this way. I mean, you know, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. You know, I've got, uh, I got snacks you don't know about. I got, I got food you don't know about. I have sustenance you don't know about. And that's because uh, those first disciples you know, weren't necessarily satisfying themselves in the morning with the unfailing love of God right? Their bellies ached for other things. So are we hungering and thirsting today for the very word of God, for his righteousness, for his goodness, for his unfailing love? Have we put our trust in him? Psalm 143 verse 8, you know, says in the second part, show me the way I should go. For to you, I entrust my life. And if you need a little song to go along with it, 
In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Next up, we've got Dr. Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to apply the mind of Christ to some of the headlines of this day. We'll be right back. I'm going to interrupt this broadcast for a breaking news alert for people with food allergies. Uh, apparently, if you have food allergies to seafood, you should also not eat the cicadas. I mean, as if you were looking for reason that you had some reason you needed a reason not to eat cicadas this season. Uh, apparently, if you're allergic to seafood, these insects share a family relation to shrimp and lobsters. Family relations specialist Peter Kapsner now joins me. How do you like that? Carmen, that is like... actually among all of the useful information you've given me over the years, and, and there has been much. Uh, I actually am allergic to shrimp and to lobsters. And so we do not have cicadas in my neck of the woods right now, but had you like sort of packaged them? I will and not. Dry, you know what? I will not. To me. Yeah. I will not gather them, slather them with chocolate, and send them to you. I mean, because I have five kids. you can't we, eat we them. We could have fed heartily on cicadas for quite some time. So please do not do that because Simon and I are both allergic to shrimp. <laughs> mm, 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 mm. Okay. Let's, um, we're going to talk about some other things. <clears throat> but we're still going to talk about family relationships. So yes, I, uh, I was interested to learn that Boris Johnson got married. Uh, in what is described as a private and kind of secret ceremony, he married his longtime, I'll call her girlfriend. He already has a baby with her, Carrie Simons. Uh, he married her on Saturday in, uh, in a secret ceremony in a Catholic church. Well, actually, Westminster Cathedral. So... Um, Let's just wander around in this because there's a lot. There's a lot in here. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, there is just, a lot in here. There's a lot in here. Yeah, you know, and and of course, uh, having lived in the UK, the tabloids over there are going to have a, a real lot of fun with with this topic because it is complicated and it is quite a winding story, both in the sense that. Uh, within the Catholic Church, there is the belief that you actually there there is no such thing as divorce, and so I, I guess even broadly speaking, within Christendom itself, Catholic and Protestant combined, there are lots of different views uh, on the validity and the veracity of divorce. But the Catholic Church has held pretty staunchly over its two thousand years, and and specifically over the last five hundred years, and even more specifically over the last fifty years, as divorce has risen in Western culture from about a six percent rate to you know, as high as maybe 58 percent, it's maybe down in the 40s again right now. And, and the Catholic Church has had to sort of reckon with this because its stance is that once God has wound together the union of the one flesh, you actually cannot rend that apart. This is God's doing. And so to file papers with the state or to make a declaration that you want to get divorced, actually, we don't have the power of human agency to do that would be the stance of the Catholic Church. And so you have to do something called annulment, which means that the somehow you have to prove that the relationship was not consummated in any meaningful way, and thus there was no actual one-flesh relationship uh, 
to begin with. Well, enter into now Boris Johnson, the situation, who has been twice divorced. And admittedly, he was divorced when he was a non-practicing, non-Catholic. But in order to get married to his now third uh, wife in this moment, he became Catholic, was baptized into the Catholic Church. And so there's there's a lot of, obviously, consternation from people saying that, well, great, the rules apply to me that I can't get divorced, but they don't apply to thee, right? Uh, Boris Johnson can go ahead and get remarried in the Catholic Church and remain in good standing. And so there seems to be one set of rules for one person versus another. And, it, and it's one of those circumstances, again, Carmen, where uh, theology or ideas about God and life, when they crash into our lives, it, it can be a mess of things when we decide to do what's sort of best in our own eyes on a number of different levels. And and so there's a lot of confusion going on right now in terms of the validity of Boris's marriage, because if, if they said that his previous marriages were not actually marriages because they weren't blessed by the Catholic Church to begin with, so no big deal, he was never actually married, well, that opens up a hornet's nest of conversation. And if they do say, no, he was actually married, then the Catholic Church is at odds with itself. And and just, I think people are increasingly wondering about just leadership as a whole on so many different levels, right? In, in politics, in, in health, and in science, and religion. And it's just one of those examples where it's a pretty tricky situation on a number of levels. Um, the other, so I've read a number of, of articles related to this, and one of the things that emerges in this conversation is lines like this. Boris Johnson has at least six children or Boris Johnson has six known children. I mean, uh, so there's a conversation to be had here, not just about uh, the marriage to this person, but the fact that they had a baby out of wedlock a year ago. Um, and so I just feel like when we're talking about marriage and we're talking about the sanctity of marriage and we're talking about the marriage bed and we're talking about marriage as this wonderful gift of God that is given to us that we might that we might in some way have a a understanding a glimpse of this the reality of the eternal marriage of Christ to the church and then i just look at how um casually it is regarded and how unsanctified this whole conversation becomes. And I worry that Christians don't even know how to talk accurately about God's good design, what marriage is from God's uh, perspective, and why it is supposed to be um, holy. I think you've totally nailed it, Carmen. And, uh, you know, if people have listened to your show and, and listened to us chat over these last couple of years, I have referenced this class on sexuality that I teach in multiple times. And I, I really am dumbfounded. I guess even, and, and it's interesting, even when I had to start teaching the class, I would say that my knowledge about that topic as a PhD professor was probably rudimentary at best, but my students ask really piercing and penetrating questions, and they don't want to sort of take um, fluff or baloney for an answer. And so it forced me to research these things. And, and, and I have a much better understanding now of the why of the one flesh. But here's what's funny about it. And this is the application I think we, we can talk about is that it takes week, or like it takes hours and weeks and months to sort of reestablish. I think we've underestimated how much our kids have been taught by the state and by our culture about relationships and to reestablish then what is the beauty and wonder and power of the one flesh relationship. It is hours, weeks, and months in this class. Now try to duplicate that in a church. I, I think that we have an opportunity, we really do as the people of God, to have an opportunity to pull back 
unwind ourselves from the culture and make a generational play at this and say, we need to come around and shepherd our young people in, in really significant ways that probably are not going to look the same the way the church has expressed itself in these past generations. Things are so different. What would it mean to pull back and have a 10-year a trajectory of, of changing the tide on this? Because I think it's going to take that amount of time to begin to even push back the tide. It's not one class on a Saturday. It's not one retreat on marriage. It's not um, one talk with our kids. There almost has to be an upended way of life that, that, the, that the people of God have to start living in to reestablish these things because of— I mean, you, you sent me other articles today, right, that are just talking about the breaking down of all these norms, and that's what our young people are being faced with. It's a pretty daunting task, but it's terribly doable at the same time. I watch it in a microcosm in my classroom of students saying, I think I finally understand what the whole one flesh thing is about, and I might actually want that, and now I don't want some of these other things. That's, that's not mm -hmm. all the students. But my gosh, Carmen, I had to learn myself in this whole thing, and I was classically trained. <laughs> so it's a really right. interesting conversation. All right, we're going to get to some of those other headlines here in just a minute, but I don't want to miss the fact that you referred to fluff and baloney. And I'm just wondering, are those references back to the cicada snacking conversation? Is the fluff marshmallow fluff? I'm just it is. Checking. It is. Okay. I, I'm still a little right, bit so upset that I can't eat them. <laughs> more with uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner on uh, cicadas, fluffer, nutter, paninis, and bologna sandwiches up next. Peter Kapsner and I are now going to talk about uh, polyamory, the next wave in the sexual revolution. And my uh, my segue into the conversation is to say that some things should go together and some things should not go together. Uh, and let me present the uh, the variations of the fluffernutter sandwich as uh, as my appeal on this topic. Uh, Peter Kapsner, if you were to spread marshmallow fluff on a piece of bread uh, in anticipation of grilling it, you know, in maybe panini form. Would right. you add to it peanut butter and chocolate chips and nuts, or would you add to it olives? Well, yeah, there's fuse the fluffer nutter with some wrong. Mediterranean. Something's yeah, wrong no, with no the way. people who want to put like cicadas and olives in with their marshmallow fluff to make a modern <laughs> fluffer nutter. Something's wrong there's with that. There's no way. Yeah, no, the peanut butter and chocolate, Ugh. because it would approximate a s'more, which is my very favorite dessert of all right. time, I think I would definitely go peanut butter, chocolate, marshmallow. But but to, again, to confuse it with Mediterranean fare would just be a mix of genres wrong. that you don't you don't need to eat. Yeah, no, that's not leading right. us to leading us to the conversation <clears throat> about the rise of polyamory, the next wave of the sexual revolution. Uh, in reading this article, I learned that there is a difference between those who are advocating for polygamy, which is the legalization of marriage by multiple people, and those advocating for uh, something that is called polyamory, which is more libertarian and less focused on marriage and more focused on just lots of people having whatever kind of amorous relationships they choose in a given moment. Yeah, and unless we think, Carmen, that those definitions of relationships are sort of outside the mainstream. And, and why would you and me talk about something like this that just is so fringe that it doesn't have any relevance at all? Uh, I'm not necessarily advocating for, for reading the New Yorker article that talked about it, um, just in the sense that there's, it, it's, there's some graphic language in it. It can be a little hard to read at times. And yet, at the same time, within what was really a well-written article, 
um, we're seeing all kinds of pushes within legislation with the states to have these these multiple partner relationships in which a family is entirely redefined. And when you read through the article, I think what's there's a couple things that really struck me. But one of them is that it was related to the Obergefell Amendment in 2015, in which we changed the definition of marriage from one man and one woman to now include uh, one man and one man or one woman and one woman. And, and the reason why we changed that uh, was because we wanted people to be allowed to do what was right in their own eyes. Now, that's a biblical phrase I'm using there. Obviously, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with that, that we, that we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we begin to do what's right in our own eyes. And marriage historically had been anchored in something bigger than ourselves that we said yes to. We said, all right, we trust God that you're designed for this as one man, one woman is the righteous. And we may not understand all of the reasons for all of it, um, but we we do trust it. And once we made that shift and, and the article talked, I mean, that some of the people that they interviewed in the article were saying, hey, look, we went ahead and approved of male, male and female, female marriage because that's how people were experiencing their life. That's what they wanted. That's what they saw as being right. And so once you pull the linchpin out and, and you, you change the conversation from I'm going to trust in God's shalom and plan to I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. Well, it doesn't become fringe anymore to start asking these different kinds of questions saying, hey, what's right in my eyes is I want to go ahead and have three or four or five different partners that I'm living with and kids that we're raising together. And this is just simply the logical extension uh, of, a, of, a, of a massive shift in how we understand relation to God, relation to one another. And it is going to be coming in a variety of ways. All of the same arguments that seem so fringe about gay marriage in 2005, 6, 7, movies like uh, Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington that began to sort of glorify this possible re relationship in which people just wanted to have civil rights. They wanted to visit their partners at hospital beds. They wanted to make sure that homes were being passed on to the people that they loved. They wanted to raise children together, all of those sorts of things. When you read the article, almost every one of those things is included now in polyamorous and polygamous relationships, and, and they're striving for the approval of these things. It would actually be a little stunning to me if maybe 15 years down the road, it hasn't become almost entirely mainstream because it's going to get picked up in media. There's going to be Netflix shows about it. It's how this thing goes generation after generation. So it, again, just goes back to what you and I were talking about, right? Uh, the, the remedy to this is not to shout against it uh, because it just doesn't work. The remedy is to begin to live a different kind of way of life and shine a different light into our culture. And that's where the church really has an opportunity. I thought um, about Genesis chapter 15 when I was reading this and and we talk about the hundreds of years that God's people are strangers in the land. They're enslaved. They're mistreated. Um, we're talking here about the reign of the Amorites. And in verse 16 of Genesis 15, it says, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Yikes. Um, sin reaching its full measure is, is not a conversation that I often hear addressed. But as I look at the devolution of of morality of particularly when it comes to relationships and generational the the impact of sin generation to generation we have to be talking at some point about sin reaching its full measure in our culture 
We do. It is the pattern. It is the pattern that you see. And, and you reference beautifully that Genesis 15 article. And, and the Tower of Babel was in that same river of understanding when God said that I have to divide these people up because nothing will be impossible for them within the original Hebrew. It's not that nothing would be impossible. It means technologically they can do whatever they want. It literally means or could be rendered no sin will become impossible to them. They will invent ways to defy me. And, and that is what it means that sin has its full measure. That's what happened at the Ark. Uh, every heart was inclined towards evil all the time. Uh, there's a very serious story of light and darkness going on in our world, uh, Carmen. And this is why just even as you started this opening hour with how do we start our days as believers, as the children of light, it's really going to continue to matter in the generations ahead. Yeah, the Ark, the Tower of Babel, uh, the time of the Amorites, the days of the judges, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. We need to be students of Scripture um, so that we can understand the days in which we now live and God's will in the midst of them. Peter Kapsner, thank you, as always, so very much. Sober conversation this morning. Um, And, you know, some fluffernutters. I learned about the fluffernutter today. I'm going to have to try to whip one up later today. There you go. All right. We Love will it. talk with you. Uh, hey, Peter is going to host the show for a couple of weeks while I'm on vacation. So, uh, Peter, blessings on that. And thank you in advance. Thank you, Carmen. I hope you have a great two weeks off. Thanks. We'll be right back. So Dr. Lydia Dugdell um, spoke at an event that I attended and I was transfixed. Um, The subject matter was dying and how bad we have become at dying. The Lost Art of Dying is her book. Um, Her area of expertise is is medical ethics um, and healthcare. She's an associate professor of medicine, director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics at Columbia uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons Um, prior to Moving to that position in 2019, she was associate director of the program for biomedical ethics, co-founding co-director of the program for medicine, spirituality, and religion at Yale's School of Medicine. She's a graduate of the University of of Chicago School of Medicine, uh, completed her medical residency at Yale uh, New Haven Hospital. She is the author of The Lost Art of Dying, and she joins us next. This is Max Locato. The disciples were on the Sea of Galilee when they heard Jesus call out from the shore. And when they reached the beach, they saw the most extraordinary sight. Jesus was cooking. He told them, come and eat breakfast. Shouldn't the roles be reversed? Jesus had just ripped the gates of hell off their hinges. He had made a deposit of grace that forever offsets our debt of sin. He, the unrivaled commander of the universe, wore the apron. Even more, he is yet to remove it. He promises a feast in heaven at which he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. Can you imagine the sight? Someone asks, has anyone seen Jesus? Yes, he's on the other side of the banquet room serving iced tea. (laughs) This is Max Lucado, and this is how happiness happens.
Increasingly in our culture, we talk about the science of dying or even good death. Um, we imagine things about death in this culture that, uh, that are patently not true and don't align with the experience of those who attend to the dying day in and day out. Dr. Lydia Dugdell is um, uh, not only a physician and a medical ethicist, uh, her classroom where she teaches is is often attending to those at the end of life. And so uh, she has written a book called The Lost Art of Dying. She has a number of articles published on the topic as well related to the year that we have all experienced during the COVID shutdown. I heard her speak at a recent event and was absolutely transfixed and mesmerized, and I'm thrilled to welcome her today to Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Dugdell, welcome, and thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carmen. It's great to be here. So um, talk with us about, take us into places where uh, death draws so near and the way that you see people handling it. Wow. So I'm a medical doctor and uh, I practice internal medicine. So a general adult medicine. And my practice is divided between the outpatient clinic, uh, you know, where you see your GP, so to speak. That's me. But I also will attend on the inpatient medical wards uh, to the very sick patients. And certainly I live here in New York City and uh, was was practicing medicine uh, right during the the pandemic when it really blew us away in the spring of 2020, and spent quite a bit of time taking care of patients who came in with COVID. Um, so I, I practice in, in many different places. Uh, where we see death and where death has really shaped me is in the intensive care unit. Uh, that's where we we are able to maintain. Uh, sometimes we'll refer to it as the vital functions because people are are really dying, uh, but we're able to maintain their vital functions because of the wonderful uh, life support technology that we have. And sometimes we uh, keep people teetering uh, just above death uh, with with the technology that we have. Um, it, it, for many reasons, in, in part because that's really the desire of the, the families or the patients themselves, that we try to delay death every moment we can. But, but doctors know full well that the patient uh, is, is actively dying. And so uh, it, it, it becomes this very tricky place, um, especially for people of faith, where we want, we, you know, we believe strongly in the good gifts of medicine, and we want to use those, uh, but we also don't want to misuse those uh, and delay uh, the opportunity to die well and, um, yeah, and to really enter that rest. This would be my moment of personal advocacy for, like, advanced directives and having really uh, in deep, specific conversations with your loved ones well in advance of these kinds of moments and these kinds of environments. Um, we have medicalized death. We have removed it, certainly from our homes. We have institutionalized it. We prolong um, we prolong death in many, many cases. Uh, talk with us about dignity and talk with us about, um, as a doctor and a person of faith, you know, have you seen someone die well and what does that look like? Yes, definitely have seen many people die well. Uh, I hate to say it, I probably in the hospital see more people die poorly. Um, I don't know, I, I haven't actually measured, but dying well, uh, 
So let me back up and just say that my work over the past dozen years or so has really, my scholarly work has really been on this question of what does it mean to die well? And I dig into models of preparing for death that developed during the aftermath of the bubonic plague that struck Western Europe in the mid 1300s. And there were these handbooks that began circulating about how people could prepare well uh, for death. And the idea behind them was that if one wanted to die well, one had to live well. So in a sense, um, dying well required the sort of cultivation of, of virtues, the kind of development of character within the context of community that would sort of usher one forward to the end, kind of, you know, in, in full glory, sort of fully there. And of course, you know, none of this is 100%. But uh, so I, I, I became uh, enchanted by these handbooks on the preparation for death, in part because I have witnessed so many patients dying poorly and really choosing to die poorly for many reasons, right? So perhaps some reasons are, as you mentioned, Carmen, we don't talk with our loved ones or our doctors about uh, the technology that's available at the end of life and what does it mean to use that technology prudently. We never have those conversations. Or if we have those conversations, they're very brief and we sort of skip over them as quickly as possible. We certainly often don't put our wishes into writing. And in fact, about two thirds of the country, despite various efforts to you know, encourage people to, to talk about advanced directives, about two thirds of the country hasn't done that. Uh, and, and there's more to say there. Um, but there's also this sort of nagging fear of death, right? Uh, even for people who believe in an afterlife, uh, the, the possibility of it all ending in this earthly life is very, very scary. And in fact, some colleagues of mine up at Harvard have done research that shows that people who describe themselves as most religious, most highly supported by their religious communities are also more likely to die in the intensive care unit, more likely to choose aggressive end-of-life measures, and less likely to die in hospice. So the most religious people are clinging to technology, which, uh, you know, it, there's, a, there's a lot we can talk about there. So, so what does it mean to die well then? Die well, dying well does not mean foregoing all technology. I'm a medical doctor. I work in a, a big hospital in New York City. I'm not opposed to using the technology that we have. But it does require a certain amount of uh, uh, prudence. What does it mean to use this technology well? Is it appropriate? Is it delaying uh, that which is inevitable, right? And on some level, death is inevitable for all of us. But, you know, there, there are ways in which the proximity to death uh, is nearer or further. And, and so when death is very, very close, it, it doesn't make sense to cling to that technology. But then backing up right? Um, how have we invested in our relationships? How have we nurtured our communities? How have we engaged in questions of meaning and import? And what happens in this life and what happens in the life to come? Is there a life to come? Those sorts of questions uh, are also required, uh, I, would, I would submit to you, uh, to die well. And so there, there, there are multiple levels, right? There's the very practical medical stuff, there's the relational stuff, and then there's the more existential uh, questions of, of meaning that we also need to address and really work those questions out 
over a lifetime in the context of our communities uh, and not just save this stuff up for the end. So just one, one maybe quick PS would be that part of the motivation for me for this work is because I have seen far too many patients, religious and not, try to save up until the very end uh, these sorts of issues. And, and so mm -hmm. I'm trying to encourage people to want to work on it earlier. So you can uh, read Dr. Lydia Dugdell's book, The Lost Art of Dying, in which she really does teach us how to recover a sense of finitude, um, helps us confront our fears, accepts, um, you know, how our bodies age, uh, how we can develop meaningful rituals, how we can involve our uh, community in end-of-life care, on and on and on. It's a conversation about both dying well and living well. Dr. Dugdall and I will continue our conversation in just a moment. In the eye of the storm, you remain in control. Continuing my conversation with uh, Dr. Lydia Dugdale, um, uh, let's talk about the lost art of dying. Then when you, when you talk about it being a lost art, that's because there have been times in the past when we have done this better. We have been better uh, at dying. So can you talk about the recovery of uh, some of the things that you've discovered in your own research and this concept of the art of dying? Yeah, so just before the break, I'd mentioned about this, these handbooks that developed in the early 1400s that were to guide uh, really the laity uh, to prepare well for death. And the handbooks were initially issued, uh, we're not quite sure who the original, original author was, but we think that it was someone affiliated with the church. This is pre-Reformation, so uh, sort of the Western church. And, but the handbooks took off. Uh, they took off and they were developed and adopted and adapted for different languages, different cultural groups, different countries. They spread all over the Western world, even to the United States. Uh, and there were non-religious versions that developed. Uh, th this genre of literature became known as the Ars Moriendi, which is Latin for the art of dying. And so that was a sort of loose name given to all of the different, uh, all of the different iterations of these handbooks. Um, but that what's interesting is that this genre of literature remained in widespread circulation for more than 500 years. And it wasn't really, interestingly, it wasn't really until about 100 years ago that the genre fell out of favor. And uh, I'll just say that what's so interesting about the fact that it was 100 years ago is that what happened 100 years ago was um, a major world war, right? World War I, with massive loss of life, not just soldiers, but also civilians, uh, women and children. Millions and millions of people died around the world in World War I. And before the war even stopped, uh, the pandemic, the flu pandemic of 1918 broke out. And so we had massive loss of life on top of massive loss of life, really six years, six sustained years of death. And people emerged from that period, particularly in the U.S., where there was a, a, a sustained period of, of enormous economic growth, not wanting to look back on the horrible six years of death. And there was a, a real urgency to, to shed culture of these, um, this art of dying, of this ars moriendi, and to sort of get on with living life. Uh, 
and people really did. And, you know, the 1920s is called the Roaring Twenties for a reason. Uh, fashion changed dramatically, music, dance, cars, uh, women got the right to vote. We have the first antibiotics and then so on. By the 1940s, we have chemotherapies, 50s and 60s. We're doing organ transplantation. By the 70s, we have, um, uh, we have multiple chemotherapy regimen where we're resuscitating people. I mean, the, the world just took off from a medical standpoint. And so it, it's interesting. So the art of dying really was lost uh, on the heels of the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920 because people were so afraid um, so, so tired of death. And I think that that possibility remains real for us now with the coronavirus pandemic. We're all sick of it. Uh, we all just want life to be back to normal. And there's a, a strong uh, possibility that we won't stop to reflect on the lessons that we should have learned uh, from the last year and a half. Well, I genuinely appreciate how you are helping us to um, to take pause and consider, reconsider, um, particularly, you know, things like our finitude and the conversations that we all need to be having about fear. Um, and I mean, we're having conversations in our house right now, like, right, we're in our 50s and 60s uh, about, you know, how our bodies are aging and how we feel about that and um, what that portends for the future. And then also, you know, having conversations with our very aging parents um, about end of life issues and conversations and concerns, and you have to you have to talk about it. You can't be so afraid of the unknown that you don't talk in the present about uh, the goodness of life and the gift of it, and um, the generational transfer of all of the good things that need to happen in terms of of memories and conversations and wisdom that needs to be passed down before you get to that point where decisions are going to be made that are either going to um, acknowledge the dignity of my parent as they move from this life into the next, um, or, you know, I'm going to make decisions that rob them of their dignity, and I don't have any interest in doing that. And so your book and the things that I have heard you say publicly um, on this topic have been incredibly helpful to me personally and the conversations we're having in our own family um, on these topics. Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that, Carmen. Yeah, thank you. So I want to really encourage people um, to get the book and read what uh, Dr. Lydia Dugdale is saying in The Lost Art of Dying. Um, and check out what she's writing and where she's speaking elsewhere. Um, I just think that uh, this is a person who is new to me and I want to certainly make known to others. Um, thank you so much uh, for sharing with us today and for doing everything that you're doing um, with patients today as well on the front line of, uh, of health care. Wonderful. Thank you, Carmen. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. Yeah, you can find more of what uh, Dr. Dugdell is writing. She's got articles posted at First Things in Psychology Today. Um, she has things uh, posted um, as well via the Q Ideas um, recent event that took place, which is where I heard her speak. Some of you are saying that um, the things that she talked about have reminded you of other things. Well, that indeed is the point, my friends. Let us allow God to make those connections in our own minds and um, and 
get us into the conversations of this day in ways that honor Jesus. Maybe the things we've talked about today um, have provoked you to think about reaching out and having a conversation with someone that you love. Maybe it's a conversation about one flesh marriage. Maybe it's a conversation about the renewing of the mind and what people are fixating, meditating, or concentrating on. Maybe it is um, a conversation about, I don't know, bologna and fluffer butter. It could be anything, right? So uh, let's get out there into the world that God so loves. Let's be people who are prepared for the conversations of this day because we have spent time in the Word of God, in the fellowship of the Spirit, and we have allowed ourselves to become more conformed to the mind of Christ and the way he thinks about things, that we could walk our faith out into the world that he so loves and do so in ways that honor him. Let's be those people today. Let's be people of truth and grace. All right, we um, we will have one more day together here, and then I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. And so I expect you to be really nice to Dr. Peter Kapsner while he is uh, sitting in for me, shepherding the show for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Today, let's make it a great one. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.